Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, taking a closer Catholic look at current events, issues, and ideas. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta thanking you for joining me. We've got two hours ahead of us talking about the things that matter most. Many of us were surprised by the news Saturday morning that Pope Francis had removed Bishop Joseph Strickland as the uh, leader of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. Um, And, of course, since then, there's been a lot of speculation as to the reasons for the removal. But there is no official statement uh, from the Vatican, and so it's a lot of speculation. Matthew Bunsen joins us. We're going to see what we actually know and what we don't know. So that's coming up. I'll have some comments on that after uh, our conversation with Matthew. In the second hour of today's program, Colleen Campbell tells us a story. For years, she saw herself as a perfectionist. (laughs) She drafted her first resume in sixth grade, uh, spell-checked her high school boyfriend's love letters, (laughs) and thought of herself as an ambitious but well-rounded person who worked hard and played hard. After she became a mother, she saw how insidiously perfectionism had infected her spiritual life and how harmful it could be to her family. She sought help, and she found it in the lives of the saints. She's going to join us to share how the saints' inspiration helped her trade her own dream of perfect for God's. And also we'll be joined by Father New Testament scholar, Father Richard Cassidy of Sacred Heart Major Seminary. He has really, um, you might say, become expert in St. Paul's joyful suffering. Uh, remember, in his letter to the Philippians, St. Paul is in chains. And these chains are marks of his union with the suffering Christ. Father Cassidy uh, looks at this uh, persecution of St. Paul, but the joy that he found in his chains, it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful remembrance that, again, the lives of the saints, in this case, St. Paul. Uh, previously, we had Colleen talking to us about the saints that were important to her. But the lives of the saints are meant to be dug into. We want the complexity there. We'll be doing that with Father Cassidy. But first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, November 13th. It's the Feast of St. Francis Xavier Cabrini. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. The Vatican announcing Saturday that Pope Francis has removed Bishop Joseph Strickland from his duties in the Diocese of Tyler, Texas, and appointing an apostolic administrator to replace him. Strickland speaking last month at the Rome of Life Forum in Rome, suggesting that Catholics need to stand up to the Pope. He makes it seem that one who opposes him and what he proposes is an enemy of the church. The removal comes after a completed formal investigation earlier this year, reportedly looking into Strickland's social media use and questions related to diocesan management. The Vatican hasn't given an official reason for the change. Matthew Bunsen has more right after this news break. 
Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his country is committed to protecting civilians in its war with Hamas. Even though Hamas has tried to prevent the civilians from leaving, uh, hundreds of thousands just- have left, sometimes having to go through Hamas gunpoints. Appearing on CNN's State of the Union, Netanyahu called any civilian loss a tragedy, but said, quote, the blame should be placed on Hamas. He insisted Israel is doing everything in its power to minimize civilian casualties. The Israeli prime minister also repeating his vow that there would be no ceasefire until Hamas releases its hostages. President Biden is set to meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in San Francisco this week. The two leaders will meet Wednesday on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, where she is expected to speak to top American business executives. The visit will be his first trip to the U.S. since 2017, when he met with then-President Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And South Carolina Senator Tim Scott suspending his presidential campaign, making the announcement on Fox News Sunday. From your Avi Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops meeting this week in Baltimore. It's their annual fall gathering. And uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen is there. He'll be reporting uh, all week from uh, Baltimore. And, uh, of course, the big news over the weekend was that uh, Pope Francis has removed uh, Bishop Strickland from his position as the ordinary of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. Uh, this was a, a great shock uh, to people, and obviously people asking, what do we know? What can we know? I thought it'd be worthwhile to spend some time with Matthew um, getting this from a, a news perspective. And so uh, that's what we're going to be doing in this next segment or so. Matthew, as you know, is executive editor and Washington bureau chief for EWTN News and also a senior fellow at St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He has been involved in Catholic communications for years, uh, co-author or author of more than 50 books. And Matthew, good to have you back here. Thanks. Good to be with you, and uh, greetings from Baltimore. Yeah, in Baltimore. I'm not, uh, I have not been there for the last few years. I think COVID was the first year I didn't bother going, and uh, I didn't go this year, although I've enjoyed myself uh, in the past when I've been there. It's been yeah. I actually, I you know that's actually where I met Bishop Strickland. Um, this was probably 2018, because it was after the um, McCarrick conviction, and yes, exactly. Um, and I greatly enjoyed my conversation with him at the time, uh, and of course uh, hearing about his removal uh, from Bishop of Tyler, Texas, was. Uh, uh, a bit of a shock, because this doesn't happen very often, right? Uh, it doesn't. Uh, now, that's not to say that it's uh, unprecedented. And uh, when we look back over the last decade, there have been uh, a number of bishops uh, who have been removed uh, or resigned uh, under pressure uh, for various reasons. Uh, in some cases, similar to this one, it's a little hazy as to exactly why. Uh, I can think uh, over the years, for example, of um, the resignation or the removal of Bishop Martin Holly from the Diocese of Memphis in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, most recently, we had uh, the uh, removal of Bishop Daniel Fernandez Torres from Arecibo, Puerto Rico. Uh, I think that was uh, just last year, in March of 2022. 
so again, this uh, is unusual, but it's not without uh, having had this happen before. Yeah, and my personal uh, affection for Bishop Strickland, from my conversation with him years ago, is not really the, what's at what's at issue here. I mean, <laughs> this is <laughs> yeah, <you> know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is a serious, a, a very serious institutional matter. Uh, he he had his diocese. He had been, um, I guess you would say, investigated uh, just this year by the Holy See. Well, that's right. Explain to us what that was about. Yes. Uh, well, the announcement was made back, I think, in June uh, that an apostolic visitation uh, was uh, going to be uh, conducted. And uh, the visitation means, as and we have seen these before, uh, not just in U.S. dioceses, uh, and there, actually there have been quite a few over the last years, uh, but we've even seen visitations taking place in different offices of the Roman Curia. Uh, so Pope Francis authorized, for example, a visitation of sorts uh, to a couple of the congregations in Rome mm. uh, that led ultimately to pretty significant changes. Uh, we have seen visitations again, for example, uh, uh, leading up to the recent resignations, I think, of Bishop Sticca. Uh, so, again, again, it's not unheard of. In this case, uh, the visitation uh, took place uh, over the summer, and the results of that uh, were never released. Now, that's, again, not unusual, because obviously this is uh, a matter of inquiry by the Holy See. We know a few things about that, though, because of the statement that came out yesterday uh, from Cardinal Daniel DiNardo, mm-hmm. the, the Archbishop of Galveston, Houston, and now that's pertinent because the Diocese of Tyler is a, a suffragan diocese within the metropolitan province of Galveston, Houston. Right. So in other words, Cardinal DiNardo has some elements of oversight uh, so when an event like that takes place, uh, he is obviously is going to be very closely involved uh, with everything that happens. So his statement included um, an observation that an exhaustive inquiry into all the aspects of governance and leadership uh, took place uh, by two retired American bishops, uh, one in particular, uh, Bishop Kikanis, uh, the retired bishop uh, and who was uh, at one point the vice president for the USCCB, uh, a, a well-known figure, certainly, uh, in the American Episcopate. And uh, the results of that, obviously, were presented to Pope Francis. And what we also know is that uh, uh, Bishop Strickland was apparently brought to D.C., uh, met with the Apostolic Nuncio, Cardinal Christophe Pierre, and asked to resign uh, he chose at that point not to, uh, and it was for that reason uh, that uh, he was subsequently removed, or to use the uh, the very specific translation of, of the term used by the Holy See when it made the announcement, he was lifted, uh, essentially, or removed from mm-hmm. the Diocese of Tyler. Okay. So uh, they do not, at this point anyways, they've not suggested the causes uh, leading to his removal. I mean, there's all kinds of rumors going around, um, but we don't have any official statement uh, except that at some point, uh, the, the as a result of the visitation, the recommenda- recommendation was made to the Holy Father that um, he it was not feasible that Strickland right. could continue yeah. in office. That's a pretty strong statement. Exactly. 
Uh, it is. Uh, now, the statement from Cardinal DiNardo, uh, I'll reiterate what you just said, uh, mm-hmm. that the results of this investigation, of this visitation, uh, ended with a recommendation uh, to Pope Francis that Bishop Strickland uh, remaining in his office was, quote, not feasible. Now, we do not know, as I said, the findings of the visitation. They have not been published, and the rest is all rumor. Mm-hmm. Uh, nor has the Vatican disclosed exactly why Bishop Strickland was removed. And uh, we can cite, too, that the, the Bolletino, as it is typically wants to do, uh, omitted any details as to why the decision had been made. The Bolletino is specifically that. It's simply an announcement. Uh, so you can parse the, the language, as I just did, yeah. of, the, yeah. of how it's phrased. But that's as, as far as you can really go uh, with any of those types of announcements. And frankly, I would be very surprised if the Holy See ever expresses any more specifics than that. Okay. In keeping, for example, with the announcement that surrounded the removal of uh, Bishop Daniel Fernandez Torres in Puerto Rico. Hmm. Okay. So uh, we're not apt to know. So those uh, folks who have podcasts and, and broadcasts who are boasting to have some inside knowledge of this are just blowing smoke. Well, possibly, in the sense that uh, uh, there are certainly many rumors and there right. are a lot of discussions in Rome. Uh, so certainly a, a story this big is going to include uh, a lot of speculation and a lot of uh, various officials in, in Rome probably talking very quietly okay. about it. Okay. Now we can add uh, with certainty what Cardinal DiNardo said, and I think that's an important uh, moment because I think that's the most detail that we've gotten and likely will get in any official capacity. Mm-hmm. But uh, we also know that uh, Bishop Strickland uh, tweeted uh, his, about his, his removal and subsequently gave an interview uh, to the conservative uh, website, LifeSite News, mm-hmm. uh, and expressed a variety of opinions uh, or speculation as to why he was removed. I mean... Th- he is. He has made statements. This, these are public statements that he believed that the Holy Father was um, undermining, deliberately undermining the deposit of faith. Um, there's also a statement uh, that he made at the Rome Life Forum. I think it was October 31st of this year, where he quoted a letter from a, a revered and saintly friend, in which uh, he approvingly. Uh, read the line that he sits, that is, Pope Francis sits on a chair that is not his own. Um, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, that doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound, that sounds bad to me. I mean, it sounds like he, like an accusation of usurping authority or something, or a set of a contest position. Um, he, you would think, you would, this is what, where it gets frustrating. You would think he would know statements like that are bound to cause trouble. Uh, and so uh, ha- so that's one, that's one thing, that, that he was removed yeah, yeah, because yeah. he was discrediting the uh, ministry of Pope Francis. And, and spoke out uh, what I've been told, and not from a source in Rome, I just mean the reality is that in terms of social media, uh, everything that you've just said uh, is, is out there. Right. Um, and these were very public 
statements that he made in social media um, on what was then Twitter, it's now X. Uh, and when asked about uh, why he might have been removed and, and why Pope Francis made the decision, uh, Bishop Strickland said uh, in his interview on uh, I believe it was Saturday, that the, the only answer I have to that is because forces in the Church right now don't want the truth of the Gospel. They want it changed, they want it ignored. But, and he went to some pains uh, to do two things. The first is that he said he's not accusing Pope Francis of being part of this effort to undermine Church teaching. Okay. Uh, setting aside the, the tweet that you just read. Right. Uh, he did say that there are, as he put it, forces working at him and influencing Pope Francis to make these types of decisions. And he's then added that for these forces, uh, I'm a problem. Now, the other thing that he said, though, is uh, he asked for prayers for Pope Francis and encouraged people in the face of um, his removal not to leave the Church, not to give up. Right. Uh, and I think uh, that's a, an important statement to make on his part, uh, given these events. Yeah. No, very good. Uh, I agree. Uh, can you stay another segment with me? Yes, I can. Do you have time to do that? Because I see the clock is just about the music's about ready to come up. And I wanted to go over some other uh, considerations that people have put forward. Uh, the, the residential community, Veritata Splendor, that moved into the Diocese of Tyler, apparently. Uh, and there were allegedly uh, uh, financial issues there. Um, the presence of a particular religious sister who had been um, uh, permanently removed from religious life, the, and the appearance that uh, Bishop Strickland had given her a home in the diocese. I just want to come back and see what we know or don't know about these claims. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. A conversation I had several years ago with uh, one of our listeners who wrote to me and said she was being challenged by a friend or a cousin or someone regarding the church and various teachings, especially on marriage and abortion and whatnot. And she said, I need the answers and I need them quickly because I want to quiet this person and shut them down. And I wrote her back and I said, I'm not going to give you the answers. I will give you some resources such as the link to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I said, but you need to look these up and you need to read them over. And you need to learn them because this is not going to be the last time that you're going to be challenged or questions about your faith. And what good is it if you're just barking answers to someone and you're not able to explain them charitably? This is a way we all should learn by doing the work ourselves. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Why is sacrifice an important part of worship? The Catholic Catechism tells us that it is right and good to offer sacrifice to God as a sign of adoration, gratitude, supplication, and communion. What is the sacrifice most pleasing to God? Psalm 51 says, It is a broken spirit. What does that mean? Paragraph 2100 of the Catechism counsels, Outward sacrifice, to be genuine, must be an expression of inward spiritual sacrifice. Old Covenant prophets denounced sacrifices that were not from the heart or not coupled with love of neighbor. The one perfect sacrifice was Jesus' agony and death on the cross. 
By uniting ourselves with the Lord's sacrifice, we can make our lives a sacrifice to God. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. He is honored by the Church as a saint with the title of the Angelic Doctor. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a basic textbook for young theology students that became the Church's most famous guide to the faith, the Summa Theologica. It helped him earn the title Doctor of the Church. He died in 1274. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. There was no single event. It was more gradual. You know, eventually you just don't go one Sunday and then you don't go two Sundays in a row. Then went through a divorce and um, ended up being a single parent. If I didn't have church or God, I, I, I would be back at that lonely stage, that trouble stage. Whenever you get anxious and worry about things, you just know that Jesus has it under control. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, uh, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief for EWTN News. We're taking a look at the weekend story of Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas, being removed uh, from his uh, position there. This is, again, Pope Francis removing him. There is no official explanation for why this was done. And as Matthew pointed out, it's not likely we're going to get that information. Nevertheless, uh, people will naturally speculate as to what the causes were. One cause that's been suggested is that he had made public statements, fairly severe public statements, undermining the legitimacy of Pope Francis's pontificate. But there were other issues that have come up, and I have no idea the degree to which these were a problem. But they're out there, and so Matthew, I want to ask you, what do you know about this residential community, Veritata Splendor, that was taking up, uh, you know, gathering in the diocese um, and allegedly, I stress allegedly, had financial irregularities and um, some immorality issues among some leadership? Yeah, it, it seems that uh, this, uh, the, the plan for this community uh, simply fell apart. And the degree to which that might have uh, played into the absolute visitation, I think, is uh, something we can only speculate on. Okay. What it does point to, though, are questions uh, that are 
logically and, and I would say sensibly raised, um, but did the visitation include elements of diocesan governance mm-hmm. and how he ran his diocese, which is a, a question that any visitation for a sitting bishop, an ordinary, to use the, the technical term, uh, is certain to uh, encompass. Right. So one of the questions that's been asked, uh, that certainly came up. Uh, there is... Um, the hiring of a former religious sister as a high school employee, uh, the obviously the support for this planned Catholic community, uh, and uh, what is perceived anyway as a very unusual amount of diocesan turnover of staff. Hmm. Uh, okay. Then there, the question was asked, apparently, and this is based on uh, reporting from the time of the visitation, uh, what his relationship was like uh, with his priests. Yeah. We have, uh, on top of that... It's a serious uh, matter. The, the social, yeah. It is. Yeah. Uh, and the relationship uh, of a bishop with his priest is central, obviously, as the center of unity for a diocese. Uh, when that emerges, uh, if they're true and if they're accurate, uh, that is something that the, certainly the dicastery was at one point the congregation for bishops, now the dicastery of bishops, needs to take very seriously. Um, again, it's an open question as to how significant those issues were in the decision uh, to remove him. Uh, we can add to that, and it, it ties into a little bit of both, I would argue, Bishop Strickland's resistance uh, to the implementation of Traditiones Custodes. In other words, the restriction on the traditional Latin Mass, the TLM, dating all the way back to 2021, it's simply something that he did not want to do. And as he put it, one of the reasons that he didn't do it is because he said, I can't starve out part of my flock. Mm. That certainly created some uh, turmoil uh, on the Rome side. Yeah, let me me just bring up, though. Uh, Where I live, I'm in the Diocese of Lansing, Michigan. And uh, at 11 o'clock Mass on Sundays, last I checked, at one of our most prominent parishes uh, in Southeast Michigan, Ann Arbor area in particular, there is, in fact, uh, traditional uh, Latin Mass. And Bishop Boyer is certainly not in rebellion (laughs) to to Pope Francis. Um, So I'm I'm saying to myself, we weathered that here in the Diocese of Lansing, and we did not have to stop with the traditional Latin Mass. And so I'm wondering if that's a problem— was it that he wasn't? He didn't have a creative way to uh, accommodate solve the problem. Yeah, right? yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And, but that's also a question that, uh, in fairness, a lot of bishops are asking and also being asked in dioceses all over the place, not just in the United States. Okay. Uh, how they deal with the issue of the traditional Latin Mass communities uh, is an ongoing. Uh, enterprise, to yeah. put it that way, okay. uh, which is one of the reasons why we had the responsa. Uh, and boy, this is becoming the pontificate of the dubia, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> to questions that have been asked about, okay, how do we actually go about implementing this, and what, what authority does a sitting bishop have over his own diocese uh, in this matter? And the answer was pretty circumscribed based on the responses from the Congregation of Divine Worship uh, and its prefect. Cardinal Roach. Now, the other aspect uh, that probably needs to be raised, too, is that part, uh, and this goes back to the twofold thing of diocesan governance, but also his public persona, his public profile, Mm -hmm. 
uh, was his very open criticism of synodality writ large, and in particular the Synod on synodality. And he sent a, a letter back in just in August that many saw as a very defiant statement about his opinion on, on synodality and, and the Synod itself, in which he said uh, that it may be that some will label as schismatics those who disagree with the changes being proposed. Instead, those who would propose changes to that which cannot be changed seek to commandeer Christ's Church, and they are indeed the true schismatics. Mm-hmm. So, it was a, again, a very defiant public statement, but he, again, according to Bishop Strickland, uh, felt compelled to do these things. But at that time, there was nothing being proposed. All of us have an idea that some people, uh, and we know now, some people at the Synod on Synodality made proposals um, regarding LGBTQ people, and, but the Synod on Synodality did not come to a place of agreement with those gay activists or gay advocates. Right. So yeah, as, far as, I, as far as I know, uh, I mean... Quite. <laughs> yes. Well, the, we have a year ahead of us. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah that's true. But 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 you're making an important point uh, that uh, the Senate itself had not been held yet. Yeah. Uh, and the the summary report, the synthesis report, that's supposed to be a bridge between the end of this Senate and the next one, uh, went so far as not even to include the term LGBTQ right. uh, in its uh, in its pages. But again, it goes back, I think, to the very public profile that, that Bishop Strickland had created for himself in social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we can also go back. One other aspect I think is worth noting here is to reasons and whether or not uh, diocesan governance was central in this. I've mentioned his relationship with his priests. He has, however, had a remarkable success in cultivating vocations for the diocese. This is a, a diocese with barely 120,000 Catholics in, in Texas, and it has 21 seminarians, <laughs> which for a population of that size, as you know, is, is wow. pretty remarkable. Uh, <laughs> and it is also uh, very well, uh, it's, it's healthy, let's put it that way, uh, financially. So it, as he put it, the financial strength of the diocese owes everything to the tremendous generosity from the people of the diocese, right. is how he's putting it. But he also added that, uh, and, and this is important too, no place is perfect, he said, no family is perfect, but the diocese is in good shape. So it depends, I think, on what metrics uh, yeah. are being used to assess the overall health of a diocese. Is it simply financial? Is it the number of vocations? Is it the relationship with his priests and with the faithful? Is it the implementation of uh, papal decrees? It, it, there are a lot of factors in this. And again, the, the Vatican itself is, is not particularly forthcoming at this point as to why exactly this happened. You know, it's kind of frustrating to not know. I guess for those of us who spend so much time following these kind of events, I mean, that's what we do, you don't like to see this information withheld. It would be instructive. I would think this would be useful of course, maybe there's confidential material here that would violate his his own rights. But a bishop is called to, to teach, to sanctify, and to govern. And so you can be a great teacher. You can even be an outstanding model of sanctity. But you might be a lousy administrator. 
And this can go for the other way, too. You can be announced. I mean, I can remember the claims in New York, the Archdiocese in New York way back when uh, Cardinal O'Connor was there. Uh, he was heroic. He was a great teacher. He was uh, really, most of us who had familiarity with him thought he was a saintly man. But the rumor was that he wasn't a great administrator. Cardinal Egan, when he came in, uh, was reputed to be a great administrator, but not an especially inspirational figure. <laughs> so, Well, and then similarly, I think Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen was himself one of the greatest communicators yeah. in the modern history of the Church, but uh, there were questions raised about his overall ability as, uh, again, uh, an administrator, I think, when he was in Rochester. At Rochester, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is funny. I, that's the story, and the way the story is told is that, you know, he was used to making his statements uh, something like, racism is wrong, and his audience, you know, can deal with that any way they like. But when you've got priests and you're telling them to implement certain policies with racial issues, they're not all going to respond like listeners or, or viewers. <laughs> exactly. So. Right, but it does go back to the individual strengths of, of people. John Paul II very famously, when he would appoint a prefect to some of the key congregations, I think the congregation for bishops and others, he made a point to those he was naming that uh, I want you to oversee this this congregation, and if I have to stand over your shoulders, you're not going to be here very long, because his priority was good governance as best he could, but really he was focused on all of the, the, the great travels that he had of his work as an apostle. And in that sense, I think uh, you're absolutely right, that uh, everyone has to find their strength yeah. and yeah. lean into it. They need to have support to do it. Matthew, let me go to one other topic before we run out of time here, and that is that people will argue that Strickland gets disciplined when you've got these gay-friendly German bishops or the fornicating Father Rupnik or catechism-denying Father James Martin all going free, so to speak, mm-hmm. and they, they have a hard time. The, proportion, the proportionality is questioned here. Yes, well, we have to always be careful with um, comparing different cases. Yeah. Uh, the Rupnik case is its own case. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's not a bishop, uh, he is a priest, and uh, that apparently, while there have been clearly many missteps along the way, uh, is currently under investigation, as, as painful as this has been, mm-hmm. and as messy as this has been. Uh, similarly, we'll see what happens with the German bishops, but at the end of the day, it's up to Pope Francis to decide how he wants to adjudicate these uh, and how he chooses to govern the church. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Matthew, thanks once again. Really appreciate your help in all this. Always good to be with you. Let's keep everyone in prayer. Thank you, Matthew Bunsen. I'm Al Cresta. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? even things you don't believe in, there are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. 
Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Last week on Ave Maria Radio's Pull of the Week, we celebrated All Saints Day by asking you to choose your favorite saint. The most popular by far was St. Joseph with more than 30% of the vote. Coming up in second, we had St. Maria Goretti and also receiving votes St. Peter, St. Patrick, St. John Paul the Great, St. Teresa of Calcutta, and St. Michael the Archangel. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Poll of the Week. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. John 6, verses uh, 48 to 58. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread, meaning me. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and never die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh, at which the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're scandalized by this. How is it that we're not? How is it that we just hear this and go, Oh yeah, I know that passage. They're just outraged and at least perplexed. Sane people, inspired teachers, wise men, Prophets don't say things like this. Dr. Ray Garendi. Two of the hardest words to say in the English language. I'm sorry. I'll ask couples, when was the last time you said I'm sorry? Oh, uh, I think it was our wedding rehearsal dinner. I, I spilled some coffee on her lap. I said, hey, sorry about that. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? What does it mean to you? Are you saying you're a failure? Are you saying I'm wrong? Are you saying, if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting it's all my fault. I'm sorry are two of the softest words in a relationship in the English language. I'm sorry, very hard to say, very easy on relationships. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, let me follow up a little bit on the conversation with Matthew. As you heard, Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas, has been removed as the ordinary of the diocese. He was asked to resign. He refused. So Pope Francis had him removed. Everybody wants to know why. Well, the truth is, we won't know until the Holy See tells us, and there's every reason to believe that this knowledge will be withheld. That won't stop people from making hay with claims to know what they are only speculating about. In short, 
anybody boasting to have inside information on this is probably blowing smoke, unless they were part of the actual apostolic visitation. It's a common temptation for people, especially smart people, to overstate what they know. St. Paul faced multiple situations in the first century. One situation was in Corinth, where the brethren were divided over whether they could eat meat sacrificed to idols. It was a dietary question. But if food had been sacrificed to idols, was it tainted? Were we tainted? If we indulge in eating this meat, did that pollute us in some way? What about those who claimed that they knew idols were bogus and their faith was strong enough to eat the meat without fear of contamination? Well, Meat sacrificed to idols is no longer a burning issue with us, but it was of intense interest in the, in the pagan world. And Paul says, watch out for those who claim to know more than they do. Let me just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, end quote. By the way, that was a maxim. It was a Corinthian motto that expressed intellectual superiority. It was a motto of the town. But St. Paul writes that this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something in that Corinthian sense, that prideful sense, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And why? Because there must be a moral as well as a merely intellectual element in knowledge. In the Catholic understanding, without knowledge to guide us, knowledge cannot fulfill the true end of knowledge. So the truth is, we're not going to know until the Holy See tells us, and there's every reason to believe that this knowledge will be withheld, and it doesn't serve the purposes of love to go around pretending we know more than we do. I met Bishop Strickland in the fall of 2018 after, the, after Vigano accused Pope Francis of protecting Cardinal McCarrick. And then we had the Archdiocese of New York's conviction of McCarrick. Bishop Strickland and I sat down face-to-face in Baltimore, and he was relaxed, an easy bishop to talk with, straight shooter. He still is. I liked him then. And I assume I like him still now if we spent time together. He was asked the other night what was behind Pope Francis's decision, and he said, the only answer I have to say is that forces in the Church right now don't want the truth of the Gospel. They want it changed. They want it ignored. Is Pope Francis part of this movement to undermine church teaching? Well, the other night he did not accuse Pope Francis of being part of this push to undermine church teaching. But last May, he said just the opposite. What does Bishop Strickland actually believe about Pope Francis's intentions? It's an open question, since within a matter of months, he has made two contradictory statements. He said, quote, many forces are working at Pope Francis and influencing him to make these kinds of decisions. For these forces, I'm a problem, he said. So they pushed for the removal of a bishop standing with the gospel, end quote. Well, the problem with that statement as it stands is that many bishops are standing with the gospel. Bishop Strickland, however, has been especially outspoken and provocative on social media. Um, And on May 12th of this year, he tweeted that he rejected what he called Pope Francis's, quote, program of undermining the deposit of faith, end of quote. And maybe it's a coincidence that the following month, the apostolic visitation took place. And he's made other strong criticisms of Pope Francis, especially on the Synod on Synodality. Um, 
Regrettably, he said, it may be that some will label as schismatics those who disagree with the changes being proposed by the Synod. Instead, those who would propose these changes, changes to that which cannot be changed, are seeking to commandeer Christ's church, and they are indeed the true schismatics. Well, now that the first half of the synod is over, it's clear that nothing has been changed. But, of course, it is not over. I grant you that. And we should recognize that we're witnessing some very high-ranking members of the hierarchy calling for a change in church teaching on sexual morality. You know, as you know from conversations Matthew have had for maybe two years now, the language regarding the synod on synodality is fuzzy. It's unclear how the synod will actually help us live out the Catholic way of life. One book was written calling the synod uh, on synodality a Pandora's box. It certainly had that possibility, and still does. But it also has the potential to defend the faith. What the synod is doing is bringing together various factions and opinions and forcing these progressives, these dissidents, these heterodox figures to go face-to-face with those Catholic leaders who want to protect the tradition, even as we go about applying it to the problems of the world. And during the Synod, it became clear that there would be no change regarding women's ordination, either as priests or deacons. Now, don't forget the story's not over, but there are those who are calling for the Church to change its anthropology. Okay, That's the doctrine of the human person. They say we have to get with it, uh, get current with the social sciences of the day. The head of Germany's bishops, Bishop George Beitzing, said that the Synod on Synodality's final text is a big step for the universal church and that the wish of the Synod to revise Catholic sexual ethics is an enormous step forward. He contends that an overwhelming majority of the universal church has spoken out in favor of this. Where? Has that universal church been polled? In fact, Beitzing's referring to a part of the Synod's final text which says this. Listen carefully. Some topics, such as those related to gender identity or sexual orientation, are also controversial in the Church because they raise new questions. Sometimes existing anthropological categories are not sufficient to grasp the complexity of what emerges from experience or from science, and therefore this calls for further investigation. We must take the necessary time for this reflection and devote the best of our energies to it and not fall into simplistic judgments that hurt people or damage the body of Christ. Well, well, yeah, end of quote. Anthropological categories may not be sufficient to grasp the complexity of life. But this statement that he claims (laughs) is changing the church's sexual ethic says nothing of the sort. It simply says we have to continue to look at the evidence as it comes in. We have to, again, understand, understand human experience. This is, it drives you nuts when you hear people overstating again what these statements mean. In August of last year, 125 employees of various Catholic organizations came out as gay in Germany. And there, Colonel Jean-Claude Hollerich, president of the Commission of the Bishops' Conferences of the European Union and the general uh, rapporteur of the Synod of Bishops, spoke on the subject of homosexuality. He, he said, I mean, he said, quote, I believe that the sociological scientific basis of this teaching is no longer correct, end quote. Earlier that year, he said the catechism's teaching on homosexuality is, quote, false. Okay, what should it be? 
Cardinal Hollerick observed that everything is changing at a speed unheard of only a few decades ago. Today, we couldn't even imagine the future. But there will be very, very big anthropological transformations. We're not talking about cultural anthropology, but about changes that also concern the biological, natural sphere. Wait a minute here. Uh, Biological evolution doesn't speed along. Even with punctuated equilibria, it's slow, almost imperceptible as it is occurring. And yet here we have the Cardinal Archbishop of Luxembourg announcing an evolution of the human species that he believes we're going to observe. What in the world does this mean? He says, if we don't catch up on our pastoral work, we'll be speaking to a man who no longer exists. Really? But what's the evidence that Catholic anthropology is false? He doesn't give us scientific facts. He gives us a little fact of sociology. He says, quote, constantly, young people stop considering the gospel if they feel that we are discriminating. For young people today, the most important value is non-discrimination, not only that of gender, but also of ethnicity, origin, social class. They are very angry about discrimination. Yeah, that's true. But what does that mean for the church's doctrine? He says, it means that everyone is called. No one is excluded, even remarried, divorcees, even homosexuals, everyone. End of quote. Well, first of all, let me say these are issues, that's cultural anthropology, not biology. Look, I go over these things because there's a lot of fog out there. You know, this is not the kind of thinking that changes the doctrine of the church. This is foggy bottom stuff. And let's remember what we are talking about. We're talking about 2,000 years of the church's teaching. You are not going to see a change in church teaching based on the thinking of these men. Okay? I keep saying to people, show me what you mean when you say the church's anthropology is false. Show me the evidence. Show me what we now know about the human person that would lead me to believe that somehow homosexual acts are not immoral. What's the discovery that tells me this? What is the the, uh, sociological fact that shows me that homosexual acts are not immoral? And guess what? These are never published. We aren't told what these facts are. We are given ambiguity. We are given foggy bottom answers like we just heard from Cardinal Holerick, who's announcing an evolution in the human species that he believes we're going to observe. Who knows where he's pulling that stuff up? I, I want to just encourage us here. We're in a time of conflict We've been through times of conflict for 2,000 years. It was G.K. Chesterton that says, you know, the church has gone to the dogs at least six times. And in each case, the dogs die. I believe that. Uh, I don't believe that uh, we don't have trouble. I believe we've got serious trouble. But I also take a look at those people who are calling for the change in church teaching. I'm not impressed. I don't see that they have special insight into the nature of the human person. I don't see that they are especially pastoral in the way they reach out to young people who are angry about issues of discrimination. Let's remember the certainty of the gospel, all right? 
Let's just read from St. John's first letter. Listen to the certainty. Listen to the clarity. Listen to the sheer joy that he has sharing the gift he's received. Quote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest and we saw it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. It's that which we have seen and heard, and we now proclaim this to you so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing that our joy may be complete. The apostles wanted their joy to be complete. Their joy is complete when light shines in the darkness and we receive that light. We have nothing to fear. God took on human flesh. He was witness to, and that testimony is still with us today. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that we proclaim to you. No answer from Foggy Bottom is going to set that aside. And now, the EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me, our EWTN Family Prayer. Today we pray for those who are suffering with Parkinson's disease. Lord Jesus Christ, consolation of the afflicted, you are our refuge. We pray for those who are suffering the effects of Parkinson's disease. As they lose their physical strength and abilities, increase their spiritual strength and abilities. Renew their inner spirit day after day, and through their share in your sufferings, give the grace of conversion to sinners. And their weakness, reveal your strength. Give peace and joy to those who care for them. Amen. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. The American Medical Association says informed consent to medical treatment is a fundamental right established in both medical ethics and U.S. law. Patients have the right to receive information and ask questions about recommended treatments so that they can make well-considered decisions about care. When speaking with a patient regarding different procedures and care options, a physician must give accurate information about the diagnosis, treatment, benefits, and risk, and allow the patient to ask questions. Ensure the patient understands the consequences of the treatment alternatives and decide if the patient is capable of making decisions with a sound mind. Document the informed consent conversation and the patient's or their healthcare agent's treatment decision. It is vital to have a healthcare agent who is aware of all your wishes, values, and medical information so that your wishes are respected in the event you are not able to make these decisions at some point. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Presta. I, I always like to go back to the basis of our faith because we weren't simply asked to believe something that gave us a bit of inspiration or brought us joy or hope. 
we were asked to believe something that happened in space and in time, and which, believed, does bring us courage, joy, hope, and a belief that God is with us. I mentioned from First John uh, his eyewitness testimony, and I just go to St. Luke and the way he starts off his gospel. He says, uh, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. It was a concern of the apostles that we would know the truth concerning the things of which we had been informed. They weren't asking us to just believe because our hearts told us. They said, this is a fact. It happened in space and in time, and the world is changed as a result of God taking on human flesh. We saw it, and that's the light that shines in this present darkness. I'm Al Cresta. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, taking a closer Catholic look at current events, issues, and ideas. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, thanks so much. Good to be with you for another hour here. Something that uh, occurred to me recently, in fact, Teresa, Tommy, and I were emailing uh, last night about this, and that is the lives of the saints are so often ignored, maybe because the way the lives of the saints are presented, that they're so squeaky clean and pious that most of us don't really relate too well to them. I remember reading Peter Brown's biography of St. Augustine. I think it's called Augustine of Hippo. This was a long time ago now. It's got to be close to 30 years. And it opened my eyes to the complexities of his life, the temptation for grandeur, uh, the temptation to fight unnecessarily. So much of what I learned in that has helped me. And so this uh, next hour, Colleen Campbell joins us. How the saints help her accept God's idea of perfect. She struggled with perfectionism. And we get a look at the saints uh, and how they helped her. Also, in his letter to St. Philippians, St. Paul is suffering. He's in chains. And Father Richard Cassidy shows us how he found joy in those chains. But first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, November 13th. It's the Feast of St. Francis Xavier Cabrini. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. The Vatican announcing over the weekend that Pope Francis has removed Bishop Joseph Strickland from his duties in the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. Speaking last month at the Rome Life Forum in Rome, Strickland suggested that Pope Francis is moving the church in the wrong direction. Bishops today need to say no. 
We're not going to pretend truth can change. The removal comes after a completed formal investigation earlier this year, reportedly looking into Strickland's social media use and questions related to diocesan management. The Vatican hasn't given an official reason for the change. The Biden administration is emphasizing Israel must not reoccupy Gaza when the conflict between Israel and Hamas comes to an end. When we start to have conversations with uh, people in the region about what the future of Gaza looks like, those are the principles we're going to lay out that we want to, to see adhered to. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller telling reporters there should be no reoccupation or reduction in the Gaza territory. This comes after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel will, quote, retain overall security control in Gaza. The U.S. Supreme Court is adopting a formal code of ethics. The justices said it's an effort to strengthen the public's confidence in the court. Democrats have been pushing for ethics reform following reports of justices taking high-priced trips and other benefits from wealthy donors. And critically ill British infant Indy Gregory has died. The eight-month-old died in her mother's arms early Monday morning after her life support was removed over the weekend. She suffered from a rare mitochondrial disease, and the U.K. High Court ruled it was in her best interest to be taken off life support against her parents' wishes. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Colleen Campbell is uh, an award-winning author, print and broadcast journalist, uh, former presidential speechwriter for George W. Bush. She's the author most recently of The Heart of Perfection, How the Saints Taught Me to Trade My Dream of Perfect for God's. She's appeared on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, ABC, PBS, EWTN, where she hosted her own television and radio shows for eight years. And you can visit her online at Colleen-Campbell.com. And Colleen, it's good to talk with you again. Thank you. Great to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Well, let's begin. Obviously, you're a great writer, um, and you've also gone, I mean, I've done a tremendous job of integrating your faith with your your writing. Uh, you didn't realize, though, that you were a perfectionist until you had children. What happened? That's right. Well, I think in a lot of ways I thought perfectionism, first of all, I thought it was the other guy's problem, and I think a lot of us think this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if your house isn't stick and spin, or maybe you're not type A about certain aspects of your life, then you must not be a perfectionist. So I thought that was somebody else's problem. Um, and I thought whatever perfectionism I did have was helpful to me in my career. I was a striver. I'd like to work toward big goals, uh, you know, thrive under pressure, do things the best I can, uh, demand flawlessness of myself, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not mm-hmm. that I achieved it, but... Uh, <laughs> When I became a mother nine years ago, and uh, I'm a mother of four, but uh, it was twins in the beginning, um, I quickly saw that what may have helped me in my career and in other parts of my life uh, was going to be a real problem in motherhood, because children don't operate according to our timeline. We don't meet our own expectations of what kind of parent we're going to be. And as a friend told me shortly after I became a mother, when I already thought I had blown it at six weeks because, you know, some some mistakes I had made, uh, she (laughs) said, you know what, perfectionism has no place in motherhood. And I thought, perfectionism, is that my problem? And sure enough, uh, as the years went on, I began to see that it was indeed my problem. And in fact, it was affecting a lot of parts of my life. But the real surprise to me and what spurred me to write The Heart of Perfection was that this perfectionism that was coming out in other parts of my life began 
with my relationship with God, with spiritual perfectionism, and what I thought God was demanding of me, and I had it wrong. Well, that's exactly uh, one of the early points that you make in the book, and and that is that um, we don't realize this problem because we mistake our perfectionism uh, for a virtue. I mean, didn't Jesus say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? And so, is this a special problem for Christians? I think in many ways it is. I mean, in some ways, we're living in a very perfectionist culture, and we hear all the time that perfectionism is the problem. Of course, the world's answer is just lower your standards. And if you're a serious Christian, if you're a committed Catholic, that, that's not going to wash. Right. You know, you know there's this universal call to holiness. And in the beginning, I thought, well, how could I answer that call if I surrendered perfectionism? But slowly, in returning to Scripture and the verses about perfection that I think I had misread the first time around, and especially with the help of what I call the recovering perfectionist saints, it's these seven <laughs> saints and one heretic I profile in the heart uh-huh. of perfection, I discovered that really that journey to holiness is not about perfectionist striving. It's really more about surrender to God's plan of holiness for us. And often that plan looks nothing like our own. And it was really in the lives of these saints, only when they let go of their own plans and their own striving and began to surrender more fully to God's grace, that's the point in each of their lives where you begin to see that great fruit come out, those heroic virtues that we later study and sometimes mistakenly ascribe to some form of perfectionism, mm-hmm. when actually it was their recovery from perfectionism that made that holiness possible. Wow, a great point. I want to get to those, uh, again, looking at the lives of those saints, but was there a, a particular moment when uh, that made perfectionism a front-burner issue for you? Yes, there was, and I remember it very clearly. I was bringing a toddler to the emergency room. I was nine months pregnant with the next baby, <laughs> and uh, there had been an accident, you know, one of those freak accidents any parent could have on their watch, but it happened on my watch, and it was preventable. You know, it was really me doing too much, running around doing too many things, trying to do them too perfectly. Uh, in, in this case, you know, led led me to overlook something that allowed this child to get hurt. So I I was marching this child into the ER, and I could barely walk. I was, I was ready to go into labor right on the blacktop. I was pretty sure. And, I, you know, I heard this familiar voice of condemnation that I had always thought was my own voice. You know, you screwed up. It's all your fault. You don't deserve anything good. And on and on. And out of kind of nowhere, I heard a different voice. Now, I didn't hear it like you and I are talking now, but just a sense in my heart, this, this, other, this other interpretation saying, you know, why doesn't someone give that woman a break? You know, maybe you did screw up. You probably did screw up, but you have to forgive yourself because you have to take care of these children. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the first time that I got a little distance from that inner critic that had been playing in a loop in my head for years. And I had always thought that critic was my own voice, yeah. you know, a reliable, if depressing guide to the truth. And I started to question that voice and to say, is that really my voice? Is that voice really telling me that the truth? Is that voice really even on my side? And that really began my journey. And it was a a real eye-opener for me to begin to realize that that voice of the accuser, that condemnation that I think all of us carry around, in some sense, is not the voice of God, that God is for us. doesn't always love everything we're doing, right? Right, right. But he's always for us. You know, this is a deep-seated problem, I think, in in many of our lives, where we we do we strive we're striving we know we want to transcend where we are today we know that the christian life is one of growth and maturing and deepening of relationship with god we want to cultivate the virtues 
Uh, and yet, we find ourselves, when we get together with our friends, we find ourselves, instead of really building one another up, we end up complaining and moaning about the state of the church <laughs> and its personnel. Um, and it, it, we, we, instead of listening to sermons, as you write, we uh, critique them. Um, so wh- where does that develop? I mean, I, I don't remember when that began with me. Right. <laughs> well, I think it's a pretty common problem. I devote a whole chapter to it. It's the chapter uh, that I also write about my one heretic who, who was directed by Francis <laughs> de Sales and seemed to be off to a rollicking start on her journey to sainthood, but took a wrong turn at the perfectionism uh, and, and never never really recovered from it and went on to do a great deal of damage in the Church. But she, Angelique Arnaldus, who I'm talking about, the mistress of Jansenism, mm-hmm. but she had the same struggle in her day, hundreds of years ago. Oh, the Church is a mess, everything's you know, going to hell in a handbasket, and yeah, absolutely, it was a mess then. We got a huge messes on our hands today, right? Sure, oh yeah. So that's yeah. always going to be there. But I think the antidote for that, and what this this heretic did not do, and why I thought she was a good example in the reverse of what we need to do, is to cultivate joy. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this sort of spiritual elitism that we can fall into. Right. And we end up being critics, and, and we end up focusing so much on our own and others' faults and rather than on God's glory. doesn't mean we overlook sin or wink at it or say that wrong is right. It simply means that we want to keep our focus on Jesus and His joy. We want to cultivate joy, and we need to distance ourselves from those people and situations and habits that we know leach our joy and lead us into sin. Because, you know, God's Word tells us that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that means when we are weak and vulnerable to sin and error and attack when we don't consciously cultivate spiritual joy. So would you say then that one uh, critique, one way of dealing with being realistic about the state of the Church as we see it today with its problems, uh, one way of being able to be, have a mature critique, an adult critique, would be if I've lost my joy, I'm off base. I, I think that's an excellent standard. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where I brought in Angelique, because she was doing all the right stuff. I and mean, she was rising at 2 a.m. to pray. She was fasting like crazy. Her nuns were the picture of, you know, hardcore holiness. Yeah. But they were a dour lot. And that was really what Jansenism, the most notorious perfectionist heresy mm-hmm. in Church history, was known for. It was dour. I mean, even the crucifix. Jesus has his arms in the shape of a V in a Jansenist crucifix, not out like a T, to show that, hey, only a few are going to make it, and everyone else wow. falls short. Wow. So when we are carrying that around, and I think, unfortunately, this can be an extra temptation for those of us who take our faith very seriously, because we're in a culture that doesn't at all. Uh, Cardinal O'Connor said not long before he died that he was seeing more scrupulosity in the confessional, because the culture was so crazy that people thought, well, I better run the other direction. Um, but the problem is we can fall off the other end of the spectrum, yes. we can go off a different cliff, that of harshness, that of becoming so discouraged, despondent, and critical that we've truly lost the joy of Christ. And we know that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So yeah. yes, I think when we've lost that, when all we project is anger and division 
and discouragement to others, and we're not drawing them to Christ or His Church, then I think we know we need to make a U-turn. And again, it may mean just tuning out for a time from the bad news that we just (laughs) were overloaded by. It may mean rolling up our sleeves and just serving others for a time and paying a little less attention to things we can't control and more attention to the things that we can contribute to. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, talking about church news is not that much more uh, edifying than talking about uh, political news. I mean, it's it's, it's, (laughs) you're just talking about ecclesiastical news. I mean, that's something especially spiritual about that. But sometimes people, I think, confuse that with with growth in the faith. Um, That's right. And I think there can be a sense that, well, you've got your head in the sand if you're not faithful. Right, you know, right. Francis de Sales was interesting because he knew exactly what was going on in his day. And it was a mess. You know, he was, in the, he was battling Calvinists on one end and complacent or corrupt Catholics on the other. He had a real—he uh, had no confusion about the state that things were in. But he used to tell his spiritual directees, you know, pray for reform. Pray that God will use you in that. But then, you know, focus on the little virtues, humility, simplicity. Simplicity, patience, gentleness, showing gentleness to yourself, showing it to others, accepting God's mercy for yourself, and then living that truth to others. It's in the day-to-day, it's in the sacrifices, he used to say, not the ones that we choose, but the ones that choose us. That's where we have these building blocks to holiness, and it's not flashy, and it's not going to make the headlines, but that's where real holiness begins. Give me uh, one example of a saint who was striving for perfection in the wrong way and had to recover from the perfectionism. Who's your favorite example? Not not the negative one. I think one. that was probably... <laughs> <laughs> I think that would probably be uh, Jane DeChantel. So okay. She was, uh, of course, co-founder of the Visitation Order with Francis de Sales. They forged this great spiritual friendship. But she's an interesting woman because I hadn't known much about her life before she met Francis. And uh, she was a French noblewoman, 17th century passionately in love with her husband. He dies in a freak hunting accident when she's 29, literally in her bed having just given birth to their fourth child. So she finds herself at 29, a single mom, widowed, four kids under age six. She's a hardcore perfectionist, a spiritual perfectionist, She's trying to uh, grapple with this. At the same time, her father-in-law comes along, angry, irascible man, demands that if she and her family want any support, they've got to move into his house, where he's carrying on an affair with his housekeeper mistress that's resulted in the birth of five children. So it's a, it's a full-on mess, and the mistress is trying to make Jane's life miserable. A local priest inadvertently adds to that because he thinks the best way to deal with a spiritual perfectionist is to drive her even harder. So she's getting no sleep because she's trying to stay up all night praying. She's giving up so much food, she's basically starving herself. She's stumbling through these days as a single mom, and she's on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And she meets Francis de Sales, and he says to her, and it's a direct quote, you're too much of a perfectionist about your faith. <laughs> and he begins to show her another way. And it's interesting because he struggled with perfectionism, mm-hmm. a form of it, in his college days. And I saw this over and over with these saints, that one would recover and then help another do the same. And he leads her on this way, and he... She says, I struggle so much. I'm hard on my kids. I'm hard on my in-laws. I'm hard on my employees. And she says, you know, that's because you're hard on yourself. And you think God's looking at you the way you're looking at them, and he's not. He's looking at you with love. Beautiful, beautiful. Colleen, thank you so much. Uh, The book is beautifully written. It's warm, uh, but it's full of insight. Uh, We'll talk again. Thank you. Thank you. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The Seventh Commandment, 
you shall not steal. The seventh commandment forbids theft, that is unjustly taking or keeping another's property against the reasonable will of the owner. It also prohibits deliberate retention of goods, lent, or of objects lost. It prohibits business fraud, paying unjust wages, forcing up prices, and taking advantage of the ignorance or the hardship of another person. It prohibits the appropriation and use for private purposes of common goods. Also, work poorly done, tax evasion, forgery of checks, invoices, excessive expenses, and waste. Under the Seventh Commandment is also tucked our social justice teachings, because if I have two coats, one of them belongs to the poor, and I reasonably ought to give what belongs to them, because God gave all the goods of this world for all the people of this world. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. Dr. Ray Garendi. He's not on drugs. Parents will come into my office and describe a litany of trouble about this long. Then they'll say this, I'm giving you the wrong impression. Overall, he's a pretty good kid. How so? Well, he's not on drugs or anything like that. One of the new moral high bars out there, he's not on drugs. You want to raise a child not with the absence of pathology, but with the presence of virtue. She's miserable with me, but she treats everybody else great. Again, not the absence of bad behavior, but the presence of good behavior. He's not on drugs? <laughs> it's a rationale. It may provide some comfort. It's not a path to virtue. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Last week on Ave Maria Radio's Pull of the Week, we celebrated All Saints Day by asking you to choose your favorite saint. The most popular by far was St. Joseph with more than 30% of the vote. Coming up in second, we had St. Maria Goretti and also receiving votes St. Peter, St. Patrick, St. John Paul the Great, St. Teresa of Calcutta, and St. Michael the Archangel. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Poll of the Week. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org.
afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. One of the uh, one of St. Paul's greatest uh, letters is his letter to the Philippians. Uh, I remember when I was pastoring, one of my f- favorite series that I did there was teaching through St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. I loved it week after week, being able to, you know, systematically go through uh, each uh, passage and. Um, and I'm glad to be able to take time today to talk with Father Richard Cassidy. Uh, he is a New Testament scholar, uh, serves as professor of sacred scripture at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. He holds graduate degrees from the Greg uh, Gregorian University, University of Michigan, and the Graduate Theological Union. He's been an active member of the Catholic Biblical Association of America for decades. Uh, he was also elected a member of the Studiorum Novi Testamentis uh, Societas, uh, which is a professional organization for New Testament scholars. Uh, he's the author of many other books. We've, he's been here before, focusing in on St. Paul, and in particular, St. Paul's uh, writings as a prisoner. Recently, he's published a Roman commentary on St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And Father Cassidy, good to have you back. Thank you, Al. Pleased to be here. I've got to ask you, first of all, about the title, why is it a Roman commentary? Well, Al, the, the title uh, relates to the fact that um, the entire venue for Philippians is Roman. St. Paul is writing from the capital of the empire, Rome itself, and he's writing to his beloved community in Philippi, which is also known by the tag Little Rome. Ah, interesting. So from the capital in chains to the Philippians, his beloved community, who are experiencing their own form of Roman persecution. So you have the duality. Paul is suffering, chained imprisonment in the capital of the empire on imperial charges, and the magistrates of Philippi are affecting persecution against Paul's adherents for their own violations of Roman protocols. So that's the story of uh, yeah. the title Roman. Yeah. To, to in in my perspective, to understand Philippians, you have to understand the two Roman poles. Very good. And you have to understand that both poles are extremely interpenetrating for the narrative of Philippians. Very good. So that, that is a, it, it came about, I was given the opportunity to title it, and I said, I want to add the word Roman in there. It's just, it's, it's, this distinguishes it from many commentaries on yeah. Philippians. Because, Al, you know as a, your own scholarship that uh, many scholars... Many pastors are uncertain as to where Philippians is written from. Yeah. Yep. They're even uncertain as to when it was written. Was it written towards the the, the middle of Paul's ministry? Or what, where was it actually? Because there's, of this uncertainty, <laughs> my title <laughs> tries Nails to that nail down. that down. <laughs> <laughs> Very so, good. So it's not, it's not it's, Paul, this is Paul's, in, in my perspective, yeah. this is Paul's final letter. He, I rely on the authority of Luke in the Acts of the Apostles. Paul has been brought to Rome on appeal to Caesar, and he is in military custody in Rome. He's guarded by praetorians, 
And he references that in the letter, that, that because of his custody, yeah. the gospel is being uh, proclaimed throughout the entire Praetorian Guard. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's quite dramatic. And um, it's one of the reasons why Philippians could not have been written at Ephesus or Caesarea. There aren't that you don't have that presence of the Praetorian Guard there. How could he claim it's gone throughout the entire Praetorian Guard? Right, right. right so, yeah. so you see, but the tie-in, it's like I even make a reference in the, in the book itself that it's a little bit like a tale of two cities, Charles Dickens' famous novel, where the events in one city affect the events in the other city and vice versa. So here, the events that are unfolding in Rome are having an effect in Philippi and yeah. vice versa. Yes. That, uh, so, so there's a dialectic between the two. Absolutely. Yeah, between very the, good. When he says I'm, I'm being poured out, is that a, a premonition of his soon-to-be in my In my perspective, uh, it is um, Paul is uncertain as to exactly what's going to happen as he writes the letter. But he distinctly envisions that his death could be eminent. Yeah. Right. So it's it's a rather uh, uh, you know a little bit back and forth on St. Paul's part. You know whether he he looks forward to death right. to be with right. Christ, okay, right. or whether he looks forward to life in order to be released and minister again to his beloved Philippians. And uh, it seems as though he he opts for. More ministry, yeah. so yeah. but it, but it's a bit of a tension that he 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 faces, and you see, uh, Al, this uh, factor. I was able to go to Philippi uh, in person, uh, you know, and the stones where Paul uh, proclaimed the gospel in the forum, and according to Luke's uh, version in Acts sixteen, Paul was beaten and stripped by the magistrates mm. because he had been uh, uh, conducting an exorcism of a slave girl who was a mantic girl bringing her owners much profit yeah. and uh, so he was able to to uh, accomplish the exorcism which landed him in a great deal of trouble in Philippi yeah. from the Roman authorities so Paul has had the experience of Roman magistrates at Philippi beating him and stripping him and consigning him to the inner jail of the town which still exists today the jail of St. Paul and then years later by reason of circumstances, he is brought in chains to the very capital of the empire. Again, consigned to to prison surroundings because of his witness to Christ. Yeah. 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 It's amazing how this unfolded. That that earlier at Philippi, he was uh, you know so uh, uh, brutally handled by the magistrates who are Roman officials. Right. Right. We must emphasize that Philippi is Roman controlled. The magistrates are Roman officials. The whole uh, structure of Philippi replicates the curia of Rome and uh, all protocol. All The gods of Rome are the gods of Philippi. Yeah, <laughs> but, but Paul knows that there's only one Lord. Right. And, <laughs> so, and that, in fact, I want to develop that a little bit later with you because that's critical here. Absolutely uh, critical. Uh, there's only one Lord. Right. right. And, and Nero, who is holding Paul in chains, it puts on his coins. And, the, and even you see some of this in my book, some of these coins. Uh, it's grateful to the German uh, director of the uh, coin uh, department, uh, the Berlin the museum that he made available these coins, Nero has on his coins these, uh, this claim that he is the Lord and that he is the Savior. Nero! 
and right. and, and Paul knows that there's no. one Lord. You know, right. So. right. But this is um, this is critical. Uh, so Paul, let's just back up just a bit here because I, I want to come back to this emperor worship thing, which is I think critical to understanding Paul's. Uh, situation, his crisis. But the, the purpose of Philippians, um, he wants to convey information, you say, uh, you know, about his situation. Uh, of course, he wants to proclaim Christ and insights about Christ, which, again, Philippians 2 is just remarkable. He wants to strengthen the Philippians against adversaries. He wants to promote unity within the community. This is key. Yeah, in, 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 in The unity of Christians is meant to be one of our biggest evidences that the Father has sent yeah, the Son, yeah, right? Yeah. So he wants to make sure unity is, is visible, can be visibly seen. And he, how it could be the case that one of the tensions affecting unity in the Philippians is the idea of how, how definite their proclamation that Jesus is Lord ooh. Uh, must be some, you know, you could imagine they say, well, let's go slower about this because the magistrates uh, don't want to hear this. This isn't Jesus is Lord. This is not approved. This is not an approved God or goddess. Right. Uh, We've got this whole, uh, you know, arrangement of who are the approved gods and goddesses and Jesus is not on the list. Well, let's do that. Emperor worship. uh, When does that become, does that begin with Julius Caesar? Well, um, you can see emperor worship uh, beginning with the first emperor. I mean, there's the, there's a sign of the worship of the of the sovereign. You know, antedates Julius Caesar. But you see, Augustus, uh, who won the civil war after Julius Caesar's death, he then said, "I control everything," yeah. and uh, my my title will be. His name was Octavius. He says, "My title will now be Augustus," which means you know. Be revered God, okay? yep. and then and and I will myself be known as Savior, and because I'm saving the world, and I will be known as the bringer of peace yeah. because I have conquered everyone. My legions now control everything, so I am the peacemaker. Yeah. You see, it's peace through the force of violence, yeah. and but so it continues. He sets up the continuity that every next emperor has to be from his family line. And that passes down, and then we come to the to the nader Nero, mm-hmm. uh, who is bizarre in his uh, desire to hold every honor, every acclaim. He wants to not only be known as uh, Lord, Savior, God. He wants also to be known as the greatest operatic singer. He's oh celestial <laughs> voice, oh celestial voice, <laughs> and chariot driver. He he wants. To, There'll be no chariot races <laughs> held unless I am in the lead chariot yeah. crossing the finish line, you see? Mm-hmm. So it's really a mania. It's, uh, and, and Paul's up against this. And, uh, and, and Paul is, so, so, uh, this is absolutely unconscionable that, that uh, we, we, can, we cannot adhere to this. We cannot adhere to this. So and the that, statement Jesus is Lord then that's right. is a definite threat to the existing social order and the political order, because you're claiming that it'd be like my saying Jesus is president or something to that effect. You see, because Jesus' uh, sovereignty for Paul is cosmic, 
right? Yes. It, yes. Any pretender, you know, Augustus, Tiberius, uh, you know, <laughs> Caligula, uh, Claudius, uh, Nero, they're earth birthed people. Jesus' sovereignty yes. co- is cosmic. And that, yes. as you alluded to in your comments, that is the, the genesis of Paul's reflection. Okay. He's putting it all together. That Jesus had cosmic sovereignty mm-hmm. of the universe with the Father, but he did not cling to it. That's right. But he emptied himself. So, so We'll come back to that yeah, because that's, that, the that's, the yeah, that's, that's the drama. That's the drama. Yeah, that's the drama. We'll come back on the other side of the break. My guest, Father Richard Cassidy, a Roman commentary on St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'm Al Cresta. Be right back. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Are you longing to hear God's voice? Lord, Teach Me to Pray, the free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Father Benedict Groeschel. I don't think people should have negative fears of God, but I think you should get a lump in your throat. You should feel excited. Suppose I was going to take you and introduce you to the Pope or to the President of some country or something. You might get a lump in your throat. Forget it. Every day, you, I, live and move and have our being in the presence of God. These are the class of feelings we should have. And we should have them to an intense degree if we really had the sight of Almighty God. These feelings are the feelings which we shall have if we realize His presence. And in proportion, as we believe that He is present, we shall have them. And not to have them is not to realize, not to believe that God is present to us. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. 
What does the Catholic Catechism teach concerning the natural human curiosity and desire to know the future? Paragraph 2115 counsels us that a sound Christian attitude consists in putting oneself confidently in the hands of providence for whatever concerns the future and giving up all unhealthy curiosity about it. What does the Catechism condemn as unhealthy curiosity? All forms of divination, deifying objects as persons, are to be rejected, as are consulting horoscopes, astrology, palm readings, interpretations of omens and lots, clairvoyance and mediums. All these venues conceal a desire for power over time, history, and other human beings, powers that belong to God alone. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Richard Cassidy, New Testament scholar. We're looking at his work, a Roman commentary in St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're talking about, again, Paul's purpose in Philippians, but we get to the second chapter, uh, which I think, by common consent, is one of the most uh, inventive, creative, brilliant passages in St. Paul's body of literature. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that. In fact, I'll I'll read the the passage. You've all heard it, but let me just uh, remind us of it. Philippians chapter 2, where um, St. Paul is pleading for unity in the church and humility. And he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any solace in love, any participation in the Spirit, any compassion and mercy, complete my joy by being of the same mind with the same love, united in heart, thinking one thing, do nothing out of selfishness or out of vainglory, rather humbly regard others as more important than yourselves, each looking out not for his own interests, but also everyone for those of others. Have among yourselves the same attitude that is also yours in Christ Jesus. And here he launches into a passage which is unparalleled in its uh, beauty and profundity. Have the same attitude in yourself that it was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because of this... God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, uh, I'm sure there are questions about translation of various passages, various words there, but let's go to it. Um, you talk about this as a drama, a, a Christ drama, with Christ an Act 1, Act 2, with various scenes within it. A Christ drama composed by Paul himself mm-hmm. as a chained prisoner in Rome. Paul is now envisioning that this could be the final stage of his journey as a disciple of Jesus, and he is putting it all together, Al. That's 
All I can say. Yeah, he's a learning. He's been learning as he's going that along. This, yeah. That this, that this, what I call the Christ drama, this puts it all together for Paul. Some scholars have said uh, maybe there was a pre-existing hymn that right. he took over. Some say maybe he wrote it earlier and used it here. In my perspective, this is born out of his profound grasp of the Roman reality in which he is inserted, and he now sees that Jesus was inserted profoundly into a Roman reality himself, so that he did not cling equality with God, mm-hmm. but rather emptied himself, this is well known, yeah. taking the human form and becoming a slave, even to death, death on a cross. Yeah. So, Al, there are four stages downward, right? But the four stages downward, the important factor is, that as Jesus is descending, he is adopting the identity of a slave. Yeah. Slave is, slave is rampant in the Roman Empire. It's a slave-based economy. It's a slave-based society. Jesus is adopting the persona of a slave. He was in the form of God. Now he takes the form of a slave. The Greek is the same. And he then submits to the slave's form of death. Crucifixion. Yeah. It's, that is how slaves were commonly executed. Others could be executed by crucifixion, but the Roman authors said, referred to crucifixion as the slave's form of death. Mm-hmm. So Jesus submits that. And this has implications for the slaves at Philippi. Numbers of slaves at Philippi and throughout the empire that Jesus is identifying with them. And Paul himself is identifying himself as a slave of Jesus. A, com- Jesus, a common phrase yes. in his letters. Yeah. I mean, I'm a doulos. Yes, uh, slave. the exact word. But yeah. he, now, he now sees it. And then to the, to the point of the cross, but in this translation, as you read, I, I would say, let me use what I would consider to be the more powerful. Sure. So that sent death on a cross. Therefore, yeah, yes, that's the hinge. <laughs> that's the hinge. Yeah. Therefore, God has exalted him, and and given him a name that is above every name. This is very important. Who has, else has powerful names? The emperors have powerful names. Right. That at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. Every knee must bow. It's, it's very. It's it's an indictment of those who crucify Jesus. Paul sees, as he's pondering, who are those who crucified Jesus, who put him on the slave's form of death? It's Tiberius. His, his lieutenant, his governor is Pilate. He's authorized by Tiberius. It's authorized Roman execution. They didn't make this up in Jesus' case. No, this is a handbook. And they put Jesus through an authentic Roman death, but then God intervenes. Therefore, yeah. at, at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. Ow. Who's every? That includes all Roman officials. That includes all believing Christians. That includes all slaves. But for the slaves, it's somewhat ennobling because right. they are now given dignity. They can bow reverently at the name of Jesus. Yeah. The Roman officials may be constrained to bow. And every tongue proclaim. It goes upward again. Downward. Yeah. Upward. It goes upward. Every tongue proclaim. Every tongue whether on the earth or under the earth or above the earth. Is anybody exempt? No. Does the governor near, the, the governor t- punches Pilate? Ha- does the governor Festus, c- who ordered Paul to Rome, does the governor 
Phoenix who mistreated Paul's case uh, looking for a bribe? Do those governors have to bow their knee, proclaim that Jesus is Lord? Yes, every tongue must proclaim that Jesus is Lord. But, again, for ordinary Christians, this is, this is worship. To proclaim that Jesus is Lord is worship. And for slaves, it's ennobling. Yeah. They are ennobled because they now can proclaim with everyone. They're not in a separate category. They're not in a, 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 a despised class. They're ennobled. And all those who they used to have to bow to by uh, force are have now themselves having to bow along with the That's, slaves that is correct. to the Lordship yeah, of Christ. And, and proclaim that Jesus is the Lord. Yeah. Then, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, to the... To the that at the name of Jesus, what is the name of Jesus? Al, in this case, the name of Jesus is Lord. Yeah. That's the decisive name of Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, which is Lord, that every knee must bow, every tongue must proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It goes back to where it started. Jesus, it started with Jesus was equal to God, but he did not cling to it. He emptied himself and he descended to the slave's form of death. Wow. But then he's exalted, brought forward. And now it's back to the, to, the, to the glory of God the Father. The Father was present all along. This is very important, often overlooked. This drama is not taking place apart from the Father. The Father somehow sees what Jesus is doing. Jesus is emptying himself to give encouragement to others to be self-emptying, as you quoted in your passage. Yeah. You know, he wants to encourage humility and self-giving, put aside rivalry and vainglory. So he cites Jesus as the paramount example. And, and Al, you can have this, you can have this in this drama. It, it, I'm looking for people to, to, to draw this drama for me. Uh, one of my students has actually done a, a preliminary drawing of uh, how there are four scenes in the downward movement and who's in each scene? Wow. And then four scenes in the upward movement. Who's in each scene? And uh, you see the drama, the Christ drama, in 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 my uh, construction of this. This is is either Timothy or Epaphroditus, or both Timothy and Epaphroditus are taking this letter to Rome, to to, to Philippi from Rome. They're taking it. Over the Via Appia. And I pay tribute to the great cartographer, Eric Gobble, who made the maps for my book. And to show that this could be done via Appia, cross the Adriatic Sea, then pick up via, via uh, Ignatia, then Philippi. And they get the letter to Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony. Little Rome, it has a theater it has an acting troupe. We've identified that there are ruins showing the existence of actors and scene creators. Hmm. And okay. for, conceivably, Epaphroditus and Timothy get to Philippi and they gather together some of these other people who are from the act, local acting troupe, mm-hmm. which is documented in, 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 in uh, inscriptions. They gather them together and they said, we have the task of our lifetime. We have Paul's Christ drama to perform for the community. Maybe it has to be very clandestine, very very undercover, to, to, because the Philippian authorities are not yes. going to want this drama proclaimed. But now Paul has identified what is going on. Mm-hmm. What, and it's mm-hmm. counter-emperor. Christ, the Christ drama of Philippians 2, 6 to 11 is counter-emperor, and it's also counter-slavery, yeah. because slaves are now treated not as the objects of 
whose lives are worthy of crucifixion, but rather those who are able to genuflect with reverence so these, and rise high the name, raise high the name of Jesus right, themselves. Right. So th- this letter then is sent back, and uh, these are publicly proclaimed letters, right? So in this case, uh, you envision that they actually uh, are going to... Uh, um, enact, enact, yes. enact. Yes. Uh, this uh, would they, so is the whole letter capable of being enacted, or is it this this one Christ drama section of it? A scholar named David Rhodes, whose mm-hmm. work I admire uh, greatly, has identified the role of memory in the transmission of letters. It's a, it's a security issue. Even how could they get the letter out of Paul's quarters past all these Praetorian guards? Maybe they couldn't get the letter on on papyrus, but they could get the letter memorized mm-hmm. and the work mm-hmm. of memory. Yeah. That this and Paul could have been guiding them, even conduct conducting you know <laughs> class sessions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let's go over this again. What I want to say, I've got this now done. If this if this letter doesn't pass security, if it's confiscated, you've got it memorized. We've got about a minute left. You go to Philippi, you yeah. proclaim it there, and you tell them that this is Paul un in undominated by the Roman emperor and his threats against me because Jesus is Lord yeah. and Jesus is profoundly identified with the cause of slaves. Yeah. So I think, you know, this letter is powerful. Now you can see my enthusiasm is just... It's we, spectacular. We got, it's, it's a letter, you know, I, I, I ask Al, Al Cresta to convene all of his talents, get this drama proclaimed. Pro, portrayed and enacted. You can use the initial drawings by my students. I'll take a look at them. Yes. Father, thanks so much. Wonderful being with you today. Al, it's a great privilege and pleasure, and I ask blessings on your ministry here at Ave Maria. Thank you. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. Have you ever been so grief-stricken and so heart-sick that you can't see God? You can't see God in the tragedy. You can't see God in that cross. You can't see God in that sick. Why? You're enveloped in that grief. You're enveloped in fear. And God is out the window. You don't see him standing right next to you. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know, but what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, 
Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians has always been one of my favorites. And I, I love the way he sets it up in the first chapter, beginning at verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that what has happened to me, remember, he's in prison right now, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brethren have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, and are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Yes, some indeed preach Christ from envy, some from rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of partisanship, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Just think of that. Sitting there in prison, knowing the gospel is being preached by those who want to hurt him, and yet he has the composure to uh, say, well, so what? Uh, In any way, whether they're doing it out of envy, doing it out of rivalry, or doing it out of love, the gospel's being proclaimed. And then he says, yes, and I shall rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We're the same time in the afternoon as a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.